Right. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I think some people are of the mind that we quit last week, um, but the faithful are here today, so I'm delighted to see you. This is our last class, incidentally, for 2022, and then we will resume in January, so be watching for that announcement in the Inspire or the Espire as they come out. Today we're going to do something a little different. I said last week that I did not want to start a new chapter of Romans because we would have such a long break that it would require us to go back and repeat the information all over again in order to put things in context. And so we did a Q&A last week, and I said this week we would do something a little bit different, maybe something that was a little more of a Christmas theme since we are approaching uh, the story of the Lord's birth. And that's what we're going to do today. So we're going to take a look at the Christmas story, but we're going to do it um, through the Old Testament, through the lens of the Old Testament, which may come as a bit of a surprise to some people. So let me begin with a statement by C.S. Lewis. That maybe will help put things into context. Lewis wrote extensively about the ministry or the, the miracle of the Incarnation. In fact, he probably talked more about this particular miracle than almost any of the others that the Lord performed. Um, Lewis loved Christmas. In fact, there's a picture of him when he was a little boy, and he's got a little Father Christmas right next to him in the, in the picture. So he loved this story of the Incarnation and the mystery of the Incarnation, and this is what he said. He said, in the Christian story, note that he doesn't say in the Christmas story, he says in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. If the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. So he regards the incarnation as the central event in the history of the earth. Now, if Lewis is right, and I think that there's great deal to suggest that he is, if Lewis is right, if the incarnation, the idea of God taking on flesh, is at the very heart of not only the Christmas story, but the Christian story, then we should find the story of Christmas all throughout the Bible. Not just in the New Testament, not just in Matthew and Luke where you have the two birth narratives, but in the entire Bible, from the book of Genesis the whole way through to the book of Revelation. And that's what I want to suggest to you today, and I thought we would go ahead and explore some of the references in the Old Testament to the coming of Christ, to the arrival of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it is true, you will find the story of Jesus' birth throughout the entire Bible. It's here in Genesis chapter 3, and you can turn there now because that's the first place we're going to stop. But it's also found at the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you turn to Revelation chapter 12, you don't have to do that now, you can do that in your own time, but if you turn to Revelation chapter 12, I think that 12th chapter is really the story of Christmas written in large. 
It's the story of the woman and the seed of the woman and the great battle with the dragon. Now, there are all kinds of interpretations, as you know, about the book of Revelation. It is a difficult book to interpret in many ways because it is a unique kind of literature, apocalyptic literature. But I think that 12th chapter is really about the story of Mary and the offspring of Mary and the battle that he will do ultimately with Satan and how he will ultimately defeat that great dragon. So we find the story at the very first book of the Bible. We find the story at the very last book of the Bible, and you will find the story of Christmas any number of places in between. So let's do something a little different today and look at the story of the Lord's birth, of the arrival of the Savior, as it is foretold in the Old Testament. And the place to begin with that is Genesis chapter 3. Now this is a passage that is no doubt familiar to you because I have referenced it many times in our classes, whether it's a, a class on Matthew or John or Revelation or one of the Pauline epistles. We've talked at great length about this. It's not surprising that the story of the Lord's birth is found in the book of Genesis. It is surprising that it is found in this particular context. Because as you know, the third chapter of Genesis is about what? It's about the fall of mankind. And that's why I say it's odd that we should find the story of Christmas, which we always imagine to be a story of exceedingly good news in the midst of a story that is filled with disaster, with catastrophe. But let's go ahead and read through the text and let me show you how this is true. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now up to this point, you know the story very well. You know that the sin of Eden was not merely that they ate of a tree. The sin of Eden was that they ate of the tree so that they might be what? Like God. And we've talked at length what it, about what it means to be like God. It means to be in charge. It means to be in control. It means to be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own destiny. And we've said that that is the root of all sin. The big sins, the little sins, however you want to quantify them, 
All sin can be traced back to this, the desire to want to be in charge, to do my own thing and to be answerable to no one. And God had made it very clear at the beginning of the story that the consequence for that action would be what? Death. Death. All right, so you're with me so far. The result of their action, of course, is that judgment will come. Judgment will come upon the man and the woman. But what I find interesting is that what follows in the next few verses is that it really is, if you think about it, a partial judgment. It really is, given what they had just done and given what God had said, a somewhat lenient sentence. What happens to the woman? Well, there are a number of things that happen to the woman. Look at verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So two things happen to the woman. And we don't have time to flesh these out because this is, as I said, a very complicated text. Uh, This is very sophisticated. We have a tendency to think that those who lived a long time ago were somewhat ignorant. You cannot read through the Genesis accounts and come away with the idea that these were ignorant people by any stretch of the imagination. But at least two things happened to the woman, this partial judgment. One is that she will have pain in childbirth. I think that can also mean that her children will be to her a frustration and a worry. And anybody that's ever had children know how true that is. Uh, Your children can be a tremendous joy to you, but they can be a worry to you. How many of you have children and known them to be a great worry to you? So there will be pain in childbirth, and then she says there will be a struggle. God says there will be a struggle between the woman and her husband for a place of supremacy. And we see that clearly in marriages too, don't we? That there's often a struggle between who's going to be in charge, how the children are going to be raised, how the household is going to be run, and so forth. This is one of the things that I realized when I was in Beaufort because As many of you know, Beaufort is a military town, a large number of Marines there. There are two bases there. There's Paris Island there, and there's an air station there. And a lot of times, um, one member of the couple would be sent off on deployment. It was normally a husband that would be sent off on deployment and uh, sometimes be gone for six months. And the woman would have to run the household. She'd have to make sure that the kids were taken care of, that all the bills were paid, and so forth. And then the husband would come back and want to just step in and take over, and the woman had been doing this for six months, and there was conflict. I can't tell you the number of military couples that I counseled because they were vying for positions of authority in the household because of the circumstances. So that's what happens to the woman. What happens to the man? Well, you look at verse 17. And to Adam, God said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So two things happen to the man. First thing that happens to him is that no longer will the land produce plentifully. If he's going to eat, if he's going to survive, he's going to have to work for it. 
He's going to survive by the sweat of his brow. Until what? Until eventually he returns to the ground from which he was taken. Now, that seems like a severe punishment. But it's not exactly what God had promised would happen to them, was it? God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. And they didn't die on the day they ate of it. Now, they died spiritually in terms of their relationship with God. That's one of the reasons why they were hiding from him in the midst of the garden. That is to say, their relationship with God, the intimacy that they had enjoyed with God up to this point, was severed. And they died morally. That is to say, their ability to distinguish right from wrong, or at least to acknowledge right and wrong, and their own culpability was diminished. Because the first thing that the woman or the, the, the man says, when God says, what is it that you've done, is he blames the woman. And the first thing that the woman does is she blames the serpent. So there is that blame game. And we recognize that this is part of the human condition. We do precisely the same thing. When somebody accuses us of something, even if we're guilty, the first thing we normally do is put up a wall of defense and make excuses. But what I want you to notice is the judgment that befell the serpent. And you'll find that in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians refer to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, as the Proto-Evangelion. Now, what does that mean, Proto-Evangelion? Well, let's just break apart the word for a moment. You've heard of the term evangelical, or evangel, or evangelization. That word, euangelion, or evangelion, means good news, glad tidings. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, who were keeping watch over their flocks by night, on that very first Christmas, they said what? Fear not, for we bring you Glad tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in this city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The word that is translated glad tidings is this word evangelion. It means good news. We translate it normally in English, gospel. All right? That's what the word gospel means. It means good news, glad tidings. Proto, proto-evangelion, means the first if you have a prototype, it's the first of its type. If you have a prototype of an automobile, it's the first type of the automobile. Prototype of a computer, it's the first time of a type of a computer. So when we are told by theologians that this is the proto-evangelion, what they mean is that this is the first preaching of the good news. And if C.S. Lewis is right, the good news is that what? That God came down that he might bring the whole ruined race up. 
And of course, that's the story of Christmas. And you can see it in the text. What does the Lord say to the serpent? He said, the woman will bring forth an offspring, and I will put enmity between her offspring and yours. And there shall be a struggle, and you shall bruise his heel, but he will bruise, some translations think, get this correct, crush your head. Now what is that a reference to? That is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. And you need to come this Sunday if you want to hear more about that because I'm going to be preaching on the doctrine of the virgin birth. That's not a doctrine that most of us hear very much about, even at Christmas time, if you think about it. We hear lots about the story of Christmas, all of the circumstances surrounding the Lord's birth, but rarely do we ever hear a message on just that aspect of the birth, the virginal conception or the virginal birth of Jesus. Now what's interesting, and I'll point this out in the sermon, what is interesting is that every single Sunday, you and I here at St. Philip stand up and profess our belief in the virginal conception or birth of Jesus. We do it every time we say the creed. But beyond that, we hardly say anything at all. But it isn't interesting that what is said here is that the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man, but the seed of the woman. So the first thing that we learn here is that there is a promise that there will come a deliverer. God's judgment is that he will bring a deliverer who even though Adam and Eve have done this terrible thing, God nevertheless loves them and he promises that one day in the future, a distant future as it turned out for Adam and Eve, a savior would come. But there's something else in this text. When the savior arrives, God has already said there will be enmity. That is to say there will be a struggle. And that is absolutely correct. There will be spiritual warfare. That's what that word enmity means in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be a struggle. A deliverer will come, but when the deliverer comes, until the deliverer comes, and even after the deliverer comes, what does the author of Genesis say? There will be warfare. I think that's important for you and for me because what it means is that the deliverance will come, but until it comes, there will be a struggle. This life is not going to be easy for any of us. And the battles that we face are not simply the battles that we have to endure because we live in a fallen world. There are spiritual struggles. Keep your finger there in Genesis and turn to the New Testament for just a moment to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible, if for no other reason than it is a short book, but practically every doctrine of the Christian faith is found in it. So it's a wonderful primer for people who are relatively new to the Christian faith. And I love the way that Paul thinks. His mind is so logical. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul is talking about what it means to live the Christian life. 
Uh, what does it look like to be godly people? What does it look like, for example, to have a godly marriage? What does it look like to be godly parents? And that's what he's talking about. In chapter 5, he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives. For example, in the latter part of chapter 5, he talks about wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, this picture of mutual submission. Then he goes on, just like the old song says, love and marriage, love and marriage, and then comes what? The baby carriage. Well, that's exactly what you find here in Ephesians. Paul talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, and then in chapter 6, he talks about the relationship between children and parents. And then note what he does next. So you've got marriage, you've got children, and the next thing that Paul says is, put on the full armor of God. That's why I said there's a logic to his thinking. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The struggles that we face in marriage, the struggles that we face in life, in our families, these are not merely the struggles that attend to everyone. Paul is very clear, these are spiritual warfare. So he says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So back here in Genesis, we see that the man and the woman have rebelled. They have broken God's commandment. They've been deceived by the serpent, Satan, and judgment comes upon them. But it is not as severe as they anticipated. The promise is that a deliverer will come who will be a seed of the woman. Seed of the woman, and yet truly human, and he will deliver. But until the ultimate deliverance comes, there will be what? There will be enmity, there will be struggle, there will be strife between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the devil. Spiritual warfare. And we can see this in the life of Jesus, can't we? We can see this spiritual warfare clearly. It's there at the beginning. It is certainly there at the end. We see it at the beginning because Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, nobody noticed it? It's foretold in the Old Testament. God had made a promise to King David that one of his heirs would eventually sit upon his throne. The place where Jesus was born, the town is actually foretold in the book of Micah. And yet when he arrived... How many people recognized it? Nobody. Now you say, well, the shepherds recognized it. They wouldn't have recognized it unless the angels had shown up and given them GPS coordinates to get to Bethlehem. 
Nobody recognized it. Everybody missed it. But then when the word began to get out that the Savior had come, everybody wanted to see it. Wise men, we're told, came from the east following a star. They went to King Herod and they said, where is this one who's born the new king of the Jews? And Herod went and inquired of all of his experts and they said, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's a small little town, but out of this small town, a great ruler is supposed to come. And Herod says to the Magi, go and find the child and then come back and tell me that I may come and worship him as well. Now we all know Herod had no intention of worshiping the child at all. Herod felt threatened by a new king. We know a great deal from history about Herod the Great. There was nothing great about him. He was one of the most wicked, notorious men who ever walked the face of the earth. He had his own children strangled and his own wife murdered because he thought that they were plotting to overthrow him. So when he hears from these powerful magi coming from the east that there is a new king in Israel, he's going to do everything in his power to snuff him out. And of course, what he did was he ordered the death of every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. We call this the slaughter of the innocents. Now, somebody said, well, we don't have any other extra biblical evidence for this fact. We have plenty of evidence as to what Herod was like. Bethlehem would have been a small town. This probably would have been a handful of children, maybe only 20 children under the age of two male children that would have been slaughtered. This wouldn't even have been a blip on the screen in first century society. This sort of thing took place on a regular basis. But the point that I want you to notice is that from the moment that he appeared on the scene, there was opposition, there was enmity to him. And it wasn't just worldly opposition, it was supernatural opposition to Jesus Christ. And it did not abate for the rest of his life. You go on and you read through the gospel accounts, and what's the first thing that happens to Jesus after his baptism in the Jordan River? His baptism was an important event, you understand. We're told that when he went down into the waters of baptism in obedience... Even though he was not there, he had never sinned, he was not there for the same reasons that everybody else was there, but he was formally associating himself with a broken and fallen humanity. When he goes down into the river to be baptized, the first thing that happens is the heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends upon him as a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. It is a coronation day. You know, they're getting ready for King Charles III's coronation coming up here in the spring. This was, in a sense, Jesus' coronation. It was the official declaration from heaven that he was the Son of God. And what's the first thing that happens on, after this great event? We're told he is driven into the wilderness where for 40 days he is tempted day and night without relief from the devil. So it's there, the minute that he comes into this world as an innocent babe, it is there, the moment that he begins his public ministry down by the banks of the Jordan River, and it is there all throughout the next three years. On a number of occasions, John's Gospel records this, the people took up stones to stone Jesus, trying to kill him. On another occasion, in Nazareth, they took him out to the brow of a hill with the attempt to throw him off. He was caught in storms, which he had to rebuke. 
And Paul is telling us, when he talks in Ephesians about spiritual warfare, that all of this is not just the acts of evil men. These are evil men. These are the offspring of the devil. These are the ones who, whether they're realizing it, wittingly or unwittingly, are being used by the enemy to destroy the one who had been promised all those centuries before who would be the deliverer of mankind. So there is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. It's there at the beginning of Jesus' life. It's there at the beginning of his public ministry. It's there throughout the corresponding years of his ministry, three years. And there it is at the very end, of course, in the crucifixion. And it is there most vividly on display for everyone to see where Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the innocent man, even Pontius Pilate was willing to acknowledge that Jesus was innocent, was led out and nailed to a tree for the sins of the whole world. And in that moment, the devil, that old serpent, thought that he'd won. Reminds me of that song by Don McLean, American Pie. How many of you know that? And you know the story is about a plane crash that killed three of the early rock and roll stars, the Big Bopper and Ricky Valens and Buddy Holly. They were killed in that plane crash in 1959, and that's what the song's about, The Day the Music Died. And it has this stanza in it about that, but I think it's an apt description of exactly what the devil was doing on Good Friday. That stanza goes like this. And as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. That is exactly what Satan was doing there on Good Friday. He was laughing with delight the day the Lord of the dance, the day the music died. But it was a Pyrrhic victory. You know what a Pyrrhic victory is? Well, I'll give you an example of one. On March 15, 1781, the British Army under the Earl Cornwallis defeated an American army at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse near Greensboro, North Carolina. All right. The British won a victory. But they suffered such heavy casualties that while the Americans withdrew from the field, Cornwallis's army was never able to be a viable force again on the North American continent. They would have to withdraw from North Carolina into Virginia where they would eventually be bottled up at a place called Yorktown. And ultimately, they would be forced to surrender, ending the American Revolution and granting the American colonies their ultimate independence. Now, when the news of the victory at the Battle of Guilford Courthouse was announced in Parliament, the Prime Minister, William Pitt, made the comment, victory, he said, any more such victories and we'll lose the colonies. And he was absolutely right. That's a Pyrrhic victory. It's a victory in which you find yourself actually losing. The price that you have paid is so extreme that ultimately you win the battle, but you lose the war. And there was, on Good Friday, Satan laughing with delight 
that the son of man, the seed of the woman, was lying limp and lifeless on that cross, and he's delightful. But it was a pyrrhic victory because three days later, as you know, God delivered him. And even though he had bruised the seed of the woman's heel, the seed of the woman would eventually crush his head, destroying sin and death forever. You know, we sometimes ask the question, how were the people in the Old Testament saved? We're told that nobody could be saved unless they believe in Jesus Christ. The Lord himself said that in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Well, how were the people in the Old Testament saved if Jesus Christ had not yet appeared on the scene? Well, we're told they were saved precisely the same way that you and I are saved. They were saved by belief in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham. Abraham was told that he was going to have a child. And that child would eventually produce heirs more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. And from Abraham, eventually there would become one who was the savior of the world. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it was what? Reckoned to him as righteousness. That's what Romans is all about that we've been studying. That's what Paul says. So Abraham, even though he could not see the Messiah, nevertheless looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come. Adam did the same thing way back in Genesis. When God said that there would come one, the seed of the woman who would ultimately destroy the serpent altogether. Adam believed that. How do we know that Adam believed and had faith in the Messiah who would come so long after him. I think there's just a hint of this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. So go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Now this is right after the curse has been pronounced. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now you might think on the face of it that Eve just means that. The mother of all living, Adam means mankind. But what is interesting is that Adam names her, not God. It's interesting, God gave Adam his name. And Eve has been on the picture for some time up to this point, apparently without a name. Why? Because she's been taken from her husband. It's Mr. and Mrs. Adam, if you will. But all of a sudden, Adam gives her a new name. He calls her Eve, the mother of all living. Why? Because from her there would become one who would turn back the clock who would undo the curse that had been brought about mankind by their disobedience. And so she really is the mother. She becomes the mother of all that is living. That whoever believes in me, Jesus said, shall not perish, but shall have what? Everlasting life. Do you understand that that is what Christmas is all about? 
That's what this third chapter of Genesis is all about. It's not just a record of our disobedience. It is also the promise of our deliverance. It's not just about trees and tinsel and colored lights. It's about a great struggle that is taking place even now in the world between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. The true light which had come into the world, he was the one that would be attacked and assaulted throughout his life. And there would be a great attempt to quench that darkness, but the light would overcome it. One of the greatest Christmas carols, one of my favorite Christmas carols, gets it right. God rest ye merry gentlemen. I know that's not politically correct, but I like it anyway. <laughs> God rest ye merry gentlewomen as well. But here's how it goes. It sums up exactly what Genesis chapter 3 is telling us. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. For remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. That's Christmas here in the very first book of the Bible. But it's not just there, as I said. It's all throughout the Old Testament. I was going to get to two more passages. We're only going to get to one. But the other passage is Isaiah chapter 9. And this is a Christmas text that you're probably far more familiar with. You probably don't think of Genesis chapter 3 as a Christmas text, but hopefully I've shown you that it is. But here's one that we're all familiar with, thanks to George Friedrich Handel. Isaiah chapter 3, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 9, Genesis chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it forever with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now that is an ancient prophecy. You know all about it. And again, we know it as a result of Handel's great work, Messiah. For unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, 
the Prince of Peace. I call this text the first gifts of Christmas. You know, that's one of the things that we do at Christmas. We give out gifts. Incidentally, I'm curious, how many of you are finished with your Christmas shopping? Oh, well, not many. Well, I'm in good company. I'm not even close. When most of us think of the first gifts of Christmas, what do we generally think of? Well, we generally think of the gifts that were brought by the Magi, the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But I want to suggest to you that Isaiah chapter 9 provides us with the first gifts of Christmas. Again, well over a thousand years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. And the gifts are to be found in the titles and the name for this child who has arrived. He is called Wonderful Counselor. Now, those two words go together. I know how Handel did this. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. But that's not how the text reads. He is to be called Wonderful Counselor. The child who is to be born who was the one foretold way back in Genesis, the one whose promise will be fulfilled on that first Christmas day, he is the one who will be the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor. That's who Jesus Christ is. You know, we live in a day in which people have all sorts of questions. I've said to you before, people spend millions upon millions of dollars every year going to psychiatrists and psychologists trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure out who I am, why I'm here, what's my purpose in life. But there is one who is the true counselor, who is the only one who can answer those questions for you or for anybody else. And that is the one who made you, the Word made flesh. You ask the question, is there a God? It's Jesus who answers that question in John chapter 14. Is there any purpose in your life? It's Jesus who answers that question in Matthew chapter 4. When he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll give you purpose, I'll give you direction. Is there any goal to history? It is Jesus Christ who answers that question when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And it is Jesus Christ who promises that even if he has to go away, he will send another counselor, the Parakletos, the Holy Spirit, who will be with us to guide us so that Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. You know, one of the things that I have discovered after almost 30 years in ministry is that there are lots of tools that a minister of the gospel needs. And I believe that seminary education is essential I know that there are some denominations that will ordain people without any kind of formal training. I think that's a mistake. I think that your pastors and your ministers should be extremely knowledgeable people. They should be lifelong learners. They should be apt to teach and to preach and to instruct. But I've discovered that you can have all of those gifts and there's still one gift that can only be learned on the job and it's one that only God can give and that's wisdom. You can have all the answers, but if you don't know how to apply them. It's like being a good doctor. You can have all of the knowledge, but if you don't know how to apply the medicine, the patient will never get well. Well, you know, that's the way it is in life, isn't it? There are so many things that we just don't know how to handle. 
There are circumstances that arise in our lives and we don't know what to do with them. We do not see a path forward. Isn't it wonderful to know that there is one who can be our counselor? A wonderful counselor that we can take our problems to and know that he will grant us the wisdom that we need to live a life of substance. The child who will be born will be our counselor and a wonderful counselor at that. Here's the second thing he will be. He will be the mighty God. Emphasis on that term mighty, powerful. You know, we live in a culture which is obsessed with power. We are obsessed with powerful people. We all seek power, control. Again, that's what the sin of Eden is all about. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to have power. And yet, how often in life do we recognize that we are powerless? Powerless over our health? Powerless over the political situation? Powerless over the economy? Powerless over our children? Powerless over our spouse? Powerless over our own desires? Oh, we want power, and yet we all recognize that it's the one thing we really lack. That's why I always come back to that passage from the Apostle Paul, because it's so illustrative of my own life. The very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Well, the promise is that that child who was born of the woman was not only a wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God, and with him nothing shall be impossible. Do you remember what the angel said to Mary? He said, you're going to have a child. And Mary's first reaction was what? How? How can this be? For I am still a virgin. I've not known a man. I'm not really even, I'm, I'm engaged to Joseph, but we've never known each other. How can this be? And what was the angel's response? Nothing shall be impossible with God. You're going to hear about that on the sermon on Sunday as well. Nothing shall be impossible with God. The one who is to come will be a wonderful counselor. He'll guide us, direct us when we're confused, when we're at a loss. And nothing shall be impossible for him. There's no circumstance, no situation in your life which is so bad, so despairing, that God is not capable of dealing with it. He shall be the wonderful counselor. He shall be the mighty God. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 1 for just a minute. Because after the angel visited Mary, she sang a song in response to this news. We call it the Magnificat. And one of the things I want you to notice about the Magnificat is how Mary talks about the power of God. She says, beginning in verse 46... My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, that's the key. He who is mighty 
has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. What the Magnificat is, is a compilation or a list of all of the mighty acts of God through a people who were inconsequential in the eyes of the world. And what Mary is saying is she knows she can trust God for the future because God has proven himself mighty and faithful in the past. The child who is to be born will be a wonderful counselor. He will be a mighty God. He will be an everlasting father. Now that might sound a little strange because Jesus, we know, was God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And some might say, well, this is a blurring of distinctions. How can he be the everlasting Father? We know that he's not the Father. The Father and the Son are the same, and yet they're not the same. Well, what this is really teaching us is that all that the Father has has been given to the Son. All of the blessings of the Father, all of the power of the Father has been given to the Son. Look at John chapter 16. Far from making any kind of blurred distinction, it's quite clear. John chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. This is what Jesus says. Excuse me, 16.5. 16, wait, 16.15, I'm sorry. 16.15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything that the Father has, all that God is, he has given to his Son. And all that the Son has, he is prepared to do what? To give to you and me. So when it says, he shall be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, that is what it means. And it also means that you and I are no longer strangers and aliens. We now have an intimate relationship with God. We see him as a father. You know, the ancients never referred to God as their father. Not even the Jews referred to God as their father. He was the father of the nation, perhaps, in the same way that George Washington is the father of the nation. But they never called him father, and yet Jesus did. Jesus called him Abba, Daddy, and he taught his disciples to pray likewise. So the one who is to come shall be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father. And because he's our father, we can take our concerns, our worries, our fears to him. How many of you remember that old song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Our precious Savior is still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. When we're weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, we should never be discouraged. We can take it to the Lord in prayer. So he's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. 
He's the everlasting Father. And finally, he is, of course, the Prince of Peace. It is through Jesus Christ that you and I, who were once at war with God, have found peace. That's what Romans is all about. It's what we've been studying. We were once at odds with God. Now he has made peace by the shed blood of his Son upon the cross. And because we have peace with God, we can now enjoy the peace of God which passes all human understanding. If you are worried or anxious, the Apostle Paul says, take it to the Lord with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These are the greatest gifts of Christmas. They are the first gifts of Christmas. It is to know Jesus Christ. It is to gain wisdom from Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor. It is to find power in Jesus Christ, the mighty God. And it is to find peace in Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. Jesus' birth is there at the beginning. It's there in the middle, and it's what we are preparing to celebrate in just about a week's time. Lewis is right. It is the great miracle that God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, should decide to come down into our midst, into our mess. This is a cesspool down here. And he comes down into it, down, 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 that we might go up. The Son of God became a son of man so that the sons of men, by his grace and by his sacrifice, might become sons and daughters of God. And it's when we realize that that's what Christmas is really all about, that we discover the secret to having a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to celebrate the mystery of the incarnation, the miracle of the virgin birth, the miracle that Jesus Christ took on flesh and came among us to be our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our Prince of Peace, grant us the grace to rejoice in this. This should be a happy time of the year. Yes, there are many memories sometimes that flood our hearts and our minds that bring sorrow memories of Christmases gone past and loved ones who are no longer with us. But the message of Christmas is that death shall not have the final say. This is not the end. A deliverer was promised back at the time of man's fall and great rebellion. And that promise was kept alive through the prophets, through Isaiah and Micah. And it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day when once and for all the seed of the woman shall take the serpent and cast him down and destroy him forever. We remember that you came down that we might go up. So fill our hearts with a sense of gratitude and joy and give us this year the merriest of Christmases. For we ask it in the name of him who is the Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.